iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Tribeca Film Festival. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome again to the Apple Store Soho. We're very pleased to, to be joining the Tribeca Film Festival for our fifth year for an exciting series of events here at the store. Uh, I'd also like to announce that guest moderating tonight is David Schwartz from the Museum of Moving Images. Uh, at this point, please join me in welcoming Spike Lee and our guest moderator, David Schwartz. Well, good evening. Um, I'm going to, Spike Lee does, of course, not need much of an introduction. I just want to say that it's, it's such an amazing career. I've been following it since 1984. He made a student film um, at NYU called Joe's Bed-Stuy Barbershop. Uh, it won the Student Academy Award. It showed a remarkable talent. And I just have to do this because uh, he made this amazing debut, of course, with She's Gotta Have It. Uh, revolutionary film, um, opened the door both for independent filmmakers and black filmmakers. These are the feature films that uh, Spike Lee has directed since then. Uh, School Days, Do the Right Thing, Mo Better Blues, Jungle Fever, Malcolm X, Crooklyn, Clockers, hold your applause to the end, Get on the Bus, Girl Six, Four Little Girls, He Got Game, Summer of Sam, The Original Kings of Comedy, Bamboozled, 25th Hour, Jim Brown, All-American, she Hate Me, Inside Man, When the Levees Broke, Miracle at St. Anna, and he's got two new films in the Tribeca Film Festival, Passing Strange and Kobe Doing Work. That's a lot of work. I know, you're catching, <laughs> you're catching up to Sidney Lumet. So. I passed, I'm trying to get Woody Allen. <laughs> I got more in the city, man. You, pro you probably do. You probably do, because this doesn't... No, he's still a great filmmaker. I mean, uh, <laughs> Inside it's... Man was really, a, you know, that's all dog afternoon. Right. In a lot of it. Right. Uh, but it's, an it's just an incredible body of work. And uh, luckily, um, the New York Knicks are not in the playoffs, so your schedule is freed up um, to be here tonight. <laughs> But when is that going to, tell us, uh, when is that going to change? When are we going to see the Knicks back in contention? Well, <laughs> look, we got a black president. Anything's possible. <laughs> okay, well, we'll remember that. Uh, maybe when the free agents start. We're looking for free agents in a few years. Um, but you, you of course, um, are the most famous, the number one New York Knicks fan, and you have a front row seat. Um, the first film that we're going to talk about here is a very close look at basketball. Uh, it's an amazing documentary called Kobe Doing Work. Um, could you tell us a bit about how this, just how the project came around? This is basically a day in the life. It's an intimate look, um, even closer than you get at a front row, at Kobe during one specific basketball game. Well, there was a film in, in uh, Cannes several years ago about the the great soccer player, say Don. Yeah. And was, what really struck me about that film was that all the cameras were on him. And I said, you know, this could work better with, I like the film, I said, this worked better for, for basketball. So, uh, Kobe was the first person I thought of. And he's also, soccer was his first sport. Hmm. And I gave him a DVD of the Sedan film and said, we should do something like this. 
And he said, fine, you know, you just got to go through the necessary channels. So then I went to NBA commissioner, David Stern, deputy commissioner, Adam Silver. Then I had to go to the, the Lakers owner, Dr. Buss's daughter, Jenny Buss. I had to go to coach Phil Jackson because we <laughs> wanted access, we wanted to bring the camera yeah. into the, the locker room. And uh, for this one game, we had 30 cameras on Kobe. He was mic'd. As I said before, Coach Phil Jackson let us bring a, uh, a camera into the locker room, which he never does. And so we filmed in the locker room before the game, at halftime, and after the game, too. And uh, what's exciting about this, you know, this is not scripted. So for me, that's what I love about sports. It's not scripted. So anything can happen. And it's kind of scary because... If Kobe gets hurt, we right. don't have a film. <laughs> yeah. If he gets in foul trouble, has to sit out the whole game and have a film. If he has two technicals, gets thrown out the game, right. we don't have a film. So I told him before we started, I said, you can't get thrown <laughs> out the game, and you can't get in foul trouble. <laughs> and all along, we knew that once we finished the cut, we would like to have Kobe provide a commentary. And so we had, done, we had been done a long time, and for whatever reason, I know he's busy, but we cannot schedule him to sit down to do the commentary. I, there was like three or four times I was, I was in L.A. doing other business, but I, I, I could have done it right then and there. And so finally we say, we'll do it when, when the Lakers come to New York. The West Coast teams only come to New York one time. Right. And the year before, he didn't play because he got suspended. So he hadn't been in New York. We hadn't seen him play in New York for two years. And so they, the Knicks were scheduled to play the Lakers the night after the Super Bowl. And Saturday night, the Lakers are playing in Toronto. So they flew into New York early Sunday morning. He wanted to do it after the Super Bowl. But I, Andrew Bynum got hurt, and he said, we can't do it. He said, we'll do it after the game, Monday night. And so this is another, like, he's not, this is not going to happen. Right. I said, you really want to do it after the game? You're going to be tired. I said, I promise I'm going to do it. And so this is funny how the spirits work. We, we, we've been trying for months to get him to do it. And when he finally decides to do it, it's when he scores 61 points against the Knicks. The so record of the greatest game ever against the Knicks. So he scores 61 right? yeah. points. <laughs> then we take him straight from the garden. <laughs> to where we recorded the, yeah. the commentary, so it worked out. And I, it, the commentary is, is a great idea to listen to him sort of looking at his own performance and analyzing it gives this whole interesting layer. Uh, to give a flavor of it, I think we have a clip from the film, so could we take a Yeah. You, okay, let's take a look at that. Another offensive board. Oh. 
A big key to winning games in the NBA is second chance opportunities. What do you think? If you win, three point shooter shoots 40%. So if you shoot forty percent, that's still you shoot ten threes. You make four of those. So that means all of those rebounds to get. So you gotta go get those things. You get more possessions. what you do, they appreciate what you do, and especially in a city of Los Angeles. It's rare to see nowadays one player be with one organization uh, for so long, for their entire career. So I said before we had 30 cameras and Kobe was mic'd, and uh, we had access to the locker room, and Bruce Hornsby did the, the music for the film, the great Bruce Hornsby, he'd done stuff for me before. I wrote the song for Chaka Khan and Clockers and wrote a song for Bamboozled. And he's a big, big sports. Besides being a great musician, he's a huge basketball fan, too. So what we, want, what we attempted to do with this film, with, through sound and the visuals, try to put the audience as like the players see it, like Kobe sees it. Because as a filmmaker, I'm frustrated watching games on television because it's, it's, I think it's not imaginative and there's so many different angles they can do. But you know, you just see him up and down the court and usually the camera's midway up, man, is in midcourt and they just pan back and forth and we were able with the with the amount of cameras we had, we were able to to really get a a different look. And it's really how, interesting how, how you just focus on him. That you'll have plays where you won't see the end of the play. You'll see what he's doing, and you really mm -hmm. get a sense of what one player does. Well, that's where I got the idea from the Sedan yeah. documentary. I just wanted to focus yeah. on Kobe, and he ended up winning the MVP last year. And uh, they should have beat the Celtics in the finals, <laughs> but they didn't. You were at that game. You were at the 61-point game. You watched. That was there. And what? What? How did the fans react? The New York fans. Oh, the, the, they gave <laughs> Kobe mad love, as I said in, in uh, the commentary. I've never heard Nick fans chant MVP for any other. <laughs> not for opposing player. Right. It's like un, unheard of. Yeah. And uh, he was moved by it, and uh, in a way, I'm kind of glad that he scored 61 points because it just really enhanced. I mean, he was on a high, yeah. leaving the garden and coming to the studio to do the commentary. It would have been, now if we had beat, <laughs> if a miracle had happened, we beat the, the Lakers that night. <laughs> miracle on 34th Street. It would have been like one or two right. words throughout the whole, yes. So he was feeling right. pretty good. Yeah, he was feeling great. Now In the, fact, he said that he felt like playing another game. Right then, he says yeah. that when he's watching, he's yeah. watching himself. Yeah, he said he got he's so amped up from scoring 61 and watching what was this. He said, "I'm ready to lace him up again." <laughs> the the really interesting thing that I got out of seeing this is that you see how he motivates his team. He's so aware of the rest of the team and every other player. So you know, you think of a superstar. Uh, obviously, it's a team game. He gives great individual performances, but he seems like a coach at times. He's um, yeah, he's diagramming. Uh, plays and stuff. 
But, I mean, Phil Jackson had that in Chicago with, with, with Michael Jordan. But I think that for people, when you do see this, you'll see how much of a coach he is because he's coaching the locker room, on the bench, on the court, yeah. telling players where they need to do and, and that type of stuff. Yeah. And was there any re resistance or fear from the NBA? Like, I was really amazed at the access that you did get because you just don't see players getting marked. Mike, you don't see this behind the scenes. Um. No, that's what they wanted. And in fact, I, I asked the commissioner, you know, do you worry about profanity? He said, no. He said, like, this can be broadcast on ESPN on May 16th, so check it out. That's Saturday night, 8 p.m. So on the, when it's broadcast, we're going to bleep out profanity. But when the DVD comes out, all the profanity is in. We're, and Commissioner Juan, he's had no problem with that at all. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's, let's um, talk a bit about the other project, because there's some similarity with Passing Strange in that it's, um, you're, you're documenting something. You, in Kobe, you're responding to this uh, sport and this performer. Pa tell us what Passing Strange is. Well, Passing Strange is a Broadway play started down the block public at the public theater. theater, and then it moved up the Broadway at the Belasco Theater. I saw it at the public first, uh, written. The book was by Stu, and Stu and, and his collaborator, Heidi, wrote the lyrics and music, and it's a wonderful, wonderful piece. And one of the producers of the play, Steve Klein, approached me about documenting this. Because so often, when a play is over, when a play shuts down, that's it. You might have some stills, or something that's not really a, a living yeah. document of what happens, just people's memories. And we all felt that this thing was too good, despite the fact that it was marketed, not, and the marketing was terrible. Yeah. And the usual Broadway audience was not necessarily right audience. What did they miss in the marketing? How did they miss marketing? They, they didn't try to reach out to the black or Hispanic community at all. And uh, I think one of the things that got them tripped up is that the uh, part of the music is rock and roll and they just think that somehow I think that just black people rock and roll they're not gonna come but come on we, we made rock and roll. Little Richard, Chuck Berry, that's all us. <laughs> Louis Jordan, you know, that's us. So, got appropriated, <laughs> but we can still claim it. And for whatever reason, they were banking. And here's, here's a dangerous thing when you want to market a film or Broadway play. You cannot base everything on, well, once we get Academy Award nominations, or once we get Academy Awards, then we'll get the box office. Or once we'll win, they got nominated for seven Tonys. Mm -hmm. And they were up against Into the Heights. And they, and they were banking everything success to, con to continue to run depended upon them winning, winning the Tonys. Tonys, they only won one. So after they win the Tonys, like, well, that's it. And so with the decline in attendance, it became evident that very soon, that, I mean, they couldn't, can't just keep throwing money out the window. The show is going to close. So we decided we would shoot, document the last three shows. And so we did the last three shows. It was 
Saturday matinee, Saturday evening. Then we did the Sunday, the final show. Those all before live audiences. And then the next day we came in without an audience and filmed the whole play again. We'll stop the start to finish. You know, now we able now there's no audience, we're able to put cameras on on uh, stage and whatnot right. and have cranes and all that stuff. But it's a wonderful uh piece and uh I'm just glad that uh, it looks like we're finally gonna get our uh, a theatrical distribution. Uh the film was a the world premiere was at, premiered at Sundance, where, where it got a great, great response, and we're looking forward to getting our desk release in the summer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, great. Well, let's. Uh, we well, have too too early. Too early. We got a okay. Couple minutes. I was going to so. show some some well, clips because I want to show them all together. Oh, okay, okay, great. And so, so, the, so the the thing we had to do though is that not to cut you off. <laughs> <laughs> You had you wanna uh, there were a couple changes I wanted to make, but at the same time I had still had to respect the brilliant direction that Annie Dorson had done with the play. She was one of the creators. She had, then with, it started in Sundance in the, the writing workshop thing. But from the very beginning I thought it was cinematic. And she was very gracious to let us change, you know, a couple things. And it just when I and once I decided I was going to do it, I was coming to the show every night. It was it was at the Belasco, where right now Joe Turner didn't come come and gone is there. So you should go check out that play too, the August Wilson play. And uh, so I saw it many times. And then Maddie Labatique, the great cinematographer, Maddie Labatique, who who shot for me. She Hate Me, Inside Man, Miracle St. Anna, shot Kobe, doing work in that, and this one too. Yeah. We looked at it and, and figured out where we wanted to place the cameras. Same thing with uh, Kobe doing work. We walked all around the Staples Center, that's where the Lakers play, and I say we wanted a camera, had a diagram of the mm -hmm. Staples Center and put Mark X is where we wanted cameras and so for passing strange Maddie and I were underneath the theater underneath the stage we had a, a bank of monitors, monitors looking at it. and so all the operators camera operators had headphones on so we calling out what shots to get it's but, like a big live TV production yes but yeah. for Kobe we didn't have that everybody just we had production meeting everybody was told what he had to get and they had to get it and in fact, I had one of the cameras for, uh, I bought Denzel's seats for the game. Denzel Washington's seats are right off, or courtside right opposite the Laker bench. So I had a small camera, and so in timeouts, I'd run from my seat to stand behind the Laker bench and, and shoot their timeouts. So both of these pieces were, were cut by the great cut master, Barry Alexander Brown, great editors, cut most of my stuff, and, and, we had a ton of footage, you know. That's the thing. It's great to shoot tape yeah. and all these cameras, but you got to look at that stuff. So, how do you? Uh, is it the ed is the editing of these projects like live TV, where you actually have, say, for Kobe, thirty monitors running, and you're sort of calling shots while we're editing? Yeah, like no, how do you? No, because uh, with the Avid system we have, you can only put up. We couldn't put up. 
right. 30 cameras, you know, at a time. So it was like a block of five that yeah. they would be divided into the screen. Hmm. But we had a, we did a live cut with Kobe and, and no, with, with Pastor Strange and with Kobe was also an ABC nationally televised game, so we had the live cut of that. Hmm. So it was a lot of, lot of editing. And uh, what I'm gonna do now, we're gonna show, we're gonna look at uh, Pass and Strange. Greetings, Christian comrade. Mr. Franklin has requested your presence. At the prayer circle. What? It's a mandatory ritual for new choir members. Oh, God. Exactly. Welcome to the prayer circle. He smoked his first joint that Thursday afternoon, <laughs> right before choir rehearsal, in a powder blue VW bug, parked atop Arlington Hill, overlooking South Central LA. The man behind the wheel was none other than Franklin Jones. <clears throat> I'm just a vessel. Church pianist, youth choir director, but more significantly, the Reverend Jones's son. That's right, Mom, I'm smoking weed with the Reverend's son. <laughs> he works in mysterious ways indeed. Our hero had found his tribe. Now, Sherry and Terry were the bad kids at church. Terry obsessively drew cartoons of Jesus, water skiing. Check it out. And Sherry always looked at our hero as if she knew his most carefully guarded secret. And as for Mr. Franklin, well, he was a completely different person when it wasn't Sunday morning. Maria Callas speaking. Yes, it's me, darlings. With my funny nose, skinny legs, and all, and I have nothing to hide. If I were any more real, child, I'd be fictional. <laughs> Children, if we were in Amsterdam right now, we'd be inhaling this, this sacrament in a comfy cafe with a wicked cup of espresso. In public? In Florante Delicto Kenda. Nobody's hiding anything over there, dig me. Wow. slaves in a beautiful balloon. And yes, there's a place in this world for whatever, for everyone, for whoever you are tonight. I mean, baby, we're all freaks dependent on the backdrop, you know? <laughs> yeah, we're all freaks. <laughs> Looking for a home. And as for this Philistine fishbowl we're swimming around in, shoot, if you want to deal with the real, I'm talking Stockholm, baby. Sunlight, you know. 
I'm talking about Rome and one of them La Dolce Vita parties, you know. I'm talking about Godard's Paris, baby. I mean, cause we a band of outsiders too, you know. I mean, I'm talking about Brother Al Camus, the stranger. Brother said Algeria, I see you, wouldn't wanna be ya, okay? I mean, I'm talking about little Jimmy Baldwin, baby. You've got to go to another country if you want to get to Giovanni's room. Ah. Now that's what I'm talking about. Half the time, he didn't know what the fuck Mr. Franklin was talking about. And that was cool, because Franklin's words would just wash over him like a Bach fugue creeping out of a cheap car stereo on the brother's side of midnight. You know when the music goes right over your head and straight into that part of you which is most beautiful? I mean when your mind can't grasp the music's mass and your heartbeat has no clue. Your pilgrim soul just follows the melody's path. Then it looks back and looks back and says, I want to thank you, brother. Hey, I want to thank you, brother. Hey, I want to thank you for this fugue. And it's a serious it is and it is so much. Whether you get it or not, it's got the baker walking a panther down the boulevard. That's amazing. So again, yeah. these are just uh, just want to pick out some, some stuff we felt being indicative of, of uh, the great piece that uh, that Stu and Heidi made. But you're, uh, what's um, interesting about both these is that you're taking these live experiences you're, and you're doing something with the medium of film that creates a kind of immediacy that you can't even get in a live experience because of the use of close-ups and, and the different angles. Yeah, but that's stuff we had to come back and do yeah. the, the day, the day after the three performances. Um, and, and what... Talk a bit about, it's such an emotional um, piece and a great w new form of kind of memoir or autobiography. Can you talk yeah, about I, kind of your emotional response to the material? Well, I loved it from the very beginning, but I should have told you, give you a little synopsis of what it's about. It's about a young African-American male growing up in South Central L.A. during the late 70s who's really is trying a hard hard time trying to fit in doesn't fit in with the people in the hood and having having trying to fit in people with the the white people in uh in LA and like many people it feels that like he must find himself and go to Europe and so this is about his odyssey where he leaves south central LA and then goes to Europe first Amsterdam then from Amsterdam he goes to Berlin and he also had the conflict that he has with his mother who, who really can't understand why you have to go to another country to uh, find yourself. And so it's a great story when you add, you know, the wonderful lyrics and, and the musicality that, that Stu and Heidi had that uh, that's why I really, uh, I mean, I grew up loving musicals. Mm -hmm. So hopefully one day I'll get to do a full-fledged musical. I mean, there have been several films where musical numbers like School, like school Days, days yeah. stuff like that, but not just, you know, all the way through. And I just recently saw West Side Story here, and I, and I encourage everyone uh, to check that out on Broadway. It's really great. <laughs> but are we ready with the clip? 
Okay. So do you want to do the next? You were going to, I was going to ask me one more thing. Well, I wanted to ask, I mean, I, I was just going to say that I think even though you, you haven't done maybe full-fledged musicals, there's a heightened quality to a lot of your films that, like, makes me, you know, has something of the quality of a musical where you sort of, are, your films are larger than life. There's a sort of well, heightened I, emotionalism. I don't look at it like that. I just yeah. think that music is a, a tool that a filmmaker could use the same way use editing, costume design, production design to tell a story. You could have music music help you tell a story too. So it's one of the tools that a filmmaker has, whether it be score yeah. or or source music. It's a real nice choice, I think, to put music into the Kobe film because that that was not yeah, an I mean, obvious it, choice. Yeah, the obvious choice to put hip hop to it. Right. You know, but that's not something that we wanted to do. We wanted Bruce Hornsby to play his acoustic piano and stuff. Yeah. So the next clip is he's gotten a plane and he's left South Central and now he's in Amsterdam. One of the things I liked about it, the cast is completely African American and they play in in LA they all playing black and then once they get to <laughs> Amsterdam they play Dutch and once they get to Berlin they're playing uh <laughs> The Germans. Right. So this is uh, the trip when he finally uh, makes it overseas. Now let's check the scene of the crime. Touchdown and once upon a time, this plastic land gives way to a new world born today. Amsterdam, spring sunshine, and the vibe is alive, and the girls look fine. He sits in a cafe, light bulb in the day. Day glow walls, incense lounging round in velvet chairs. So glad he took the trip out the slaveholder's grip. He knew his destiny was looming, and the epiphany was blooming, and the loss was going to get profound, and the real was about to go down. And he saw that his whole journey through the bowels of the middle-class coon show had ended with a single moment of utter crystalline clarity while the real was to be revealed right here within this very venue. There's hashish on the menu. <laughs> and prostitutes in windows, all vices in full view. Everything was in its proper place, including the smile on his face. Professor and part-time sex worker. 
wait to see the rest of it. It's a great piece of work. Uh, we're going to open it up now to your questions. And we have microphones, so um, just raise your hand if you have a question, and we'll bring a mic to you right over here. I was wondering if you could expound a bit on your love of musicals and perhaps share a couple of musicals that, if you had your druthers, you could translate to film and kind of what your thoughts might be to translate them. I've never done a scene of film where... where I said, I wish I would have done that, because I don't think like that. I mean, there's no woulda, coulda, shoulda. If I didn't direct the film, I didn't direct it. But my mother was taking me to the Broadway musicals as a, when I was real little, so that's where the influence comes from. And as I mentioned before, West Side Story, that's one of my favorites uh, of all time. And I was glad to, to see the rival the revival of this play. What I liked about the revival is that they, you know, they incorporated Spanish, so some of the dialogue and some of the, the lyrics are now sung in Spanish. Okay, back there. Hey, Mr. Lee here. My name is Alfonso, and um, pleasure to meet you first off. And uh, my first question is, was there ever a time... Your one question. Okay. <laughs> was there ever a time when you're making a film or like the Colby where you were like, I'm in over my head, this is a lot. Like you said, there were like 30 cameras. Was that no. time? No, Really, that only happened on She Used to Have in the school days because it wasn't until Do the Right Thing, my third film, where I felt confident as a director. But the first two films, again, She Used to Have in school days, I did not, I did not feel confident, did not feel confident as a, doing what a director needs to be doing, especially interacting with actors. Okay. So that didn't really come to the third film. Okay, back here. Hi, Spike. Um, Hello. I just wanted to say that I really love your work. Um, also, I, want, I was just wondering, um, what films and what directors growing up really inspired you? But growing up, I, didn't want to be a, I had no idea I wanted to be a filmmaker. So it wasn't like me being a filmmaker didn't happen until the ideal being a filmmaker. I started thinking about it until college. But... I would say, you know, Billy Wilder, Kurosawa, Morris Scorsese, you know, great filmmakers like that. Okay, we have uh, right down here. Go ahead. Hey, Spike, how are you? I worked on Bamboozle uh, a couple of years ago, uh, just a helper. And um, I, I'm a What did you do on the film? <laughs> I did running around. Mm. I, I'm a DP now, and I'm shooting on the red. When are you going to make a film on the red? The red? I don't know. <laughs> okay. The verdict is still out on the red. Hi, good evening. Um, what inspires you to make controversial and interracial movies in society? When, very good question. I don't really think of stuff like, when I'm getting ready to do a film, I don't say, what's the, what, what controversial subject matter can I do? <laughs> it's really, that's not really a thought process. It's really, 
the story I want to tell. And, and I also think that the word controversial is overused, and sometimes I think you could, inter, you could use thought-provoking instead of the word controversial. controversial. One of the reasons I read that list of films is just to remind people the variety that you've done, comedies, uh, all types of movies. Well, I'm glad you did that because people tend to, not most people, some people tend to think, just pick out, you know, the films dealing with race in this country, like Do the Right Thing, yeah. uh, Malcolm X, those, Jungle Fever, those two, those three. Yeah. Okay, uh, right down here. Thank you, Miss Aline. Hi, my name is Danielle. And being that our country in an era of changing and things like that, are you going to be working on a project to reflect what's going on right now, dealing with the recession, dealing with politics, with the change of presidency, anything like that? Well, that's that's a lot of that's a lot of stuff you just mentioned. Hopefully, the next film is going to be in the, the the sequel, Inside Man Two, and right. and it'll be will take place in a world where. People have lost their jobs left and right, lost their homes, and uh, are hurting. Okay, I think uh, just over here, just wait for the mic. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, yes. Good evening, Mr. Lee. Um, I have a quick question. Um, out, of, out of a lot of NBA players, what made you decide to pick Kobe Bryant? Um, he, well, he ended up being the MVP last year. <laughs> ended up taking the Lakers to the finals, where they should have beat Boston. and. Really, it's really two players, it's either LeBron or Kobe. Okay. Uh, right down here, uh, right down here, and then we'll go over to you. Yes, sir. Yeah, how you doing, Spike? Uh, my name is Tap Waters. Nice to meet you. Um, I'm here because um, I'm working on a documentary. I brought you a poster right here from uh, my company, the T-shirt. Pretty much when I was 17, right, I got shot by my cousin. It left me paralyzed, but I um, met um, On purpose? Not nah, by accident, playing with a gun. When I was younger, and um, but um, after I came out of the hospital and everything, I always been a hip hop artist, and I met this this other guy who was actually hit by a straight bullet himself and left in the wheelchair. He's a producer, and we teamed up and we started a movement called Four Wheel City, and pretty much um, for the last four years we've been documenting our journey, um, trying to get into the music business and also inspiring people not to give up in life and showing people that just because you go through things, you don't have to stop. So we're trying to break down barriers for people with disabilities and stuff like that. And um, so we got a movement and um, uh, movies um, coming out. And would it be better to like try to go f just to get distribution or maybe start off with film festivals and things like that? I would say film festivals. Uh, that's where you get, that's where your work gets seen, in film festivals. And I think that uh, sounds to me like what you've been doing has been the right path, and I commend you for what you're doing. And we have to do something about guns in this country. I mean, this this is we live in the most violent country in the history of civilization, and people shooting each other left and right over dumb shit. We need tougher gun laws to, to stop this, this madness of, of people just killing each other. It, it's crazy. Okay. Uh, in the back over here. Hey, Spike. It's uh, Phil24 from the UK, man. We uh, spoke to you earlier on. I know you're a big Arsenal fan. Just wondered whether you might be considering coming and doing Adebayo or doing work. 
You know, the next thing I want to do in sports probably is going to be uh, the World Cup when it when it takes place in South Africa. So I'm trying to figure out what the angle will be for that. But I definitely would like to be filming in South Africa in 2010 for the World Cup. Okay, uh, right over here, in the back. Oh, hey, Spike. Um, I'm a big fan of your work. Um, it's going to sound a little weird, but. Um, I'm also a big fan of your dad, Bill mm, Lee, right. because I'm, um, I'm a trumpet player. Uh -huh. And uh, there was a, a little article in the New York Times, and they showed your dad's brownstone. Mm -hmm. And I was in the neighborhood, and I really wanted to go inside and say hello. So I, I was wondering if, is that okay if I... <laughs> if I stop by and talk to your dad about jazz? Ring the bell. Okay. <laughs> you know, warm weather will be sitting on the stoop, so you don't have to even uh, ring the bell. <laughs> no, I want to thank you for that. My father, Bill Lee, is an accomplished musician, jazz bassist, and he did the scores for all my student films. Plus, she's going to have it. School days, do the right okay. thing, Mo Better Blues. Good evening, uh, Spike. My name's Nadia. What's the one thing or the one piece of advice that you can pass on? What's one thing that you've really learned? I get, thank you. I, get asked, I get asked this question a lot, and it's not a secret formula. I don't care who you ask, whether it's me, Francois Coppola, Spielberg, George Lucas. There's not one thing that any of us can tell you that's going to be like abracadabra, <laughs> presto changeo, and you're a filmmaker. I think that you have to find your own way. You also, I think that if you did your research and you look at the rebirth of independent cinema, which is really like the last 30 or so years, if you did a survey and look at the films directed by first time, first timers, I would say almost more than half of them, these were people who directed their own scripts. Mm -hmm. So that if, if you're a writer-director, a hyphenate, you have a much better chance of getting your films made if you write a great script versus just being a director and having to try to find the property, hook up with the writer, option a script, a comic book, a story, whatever. So, and, and I didn't realize this when I was in elementary school. But well, my English teacher would, would tell us all the time that if you can write, no matter what you want to do, you'll be so much ahead, you know, down the line, no matter whatever field you chose to, to pursue. And, I mean, it, it's so much easier. Not that it's easy, but if, you, if you're a writer-director, I think you have a better chance of... Uh, and if you're not a writer, then you have to make sure that you hook up with somebody they can write. Did this help you a lot with She's Gotta Have It, with having a, a good script? Like, how did... Well, that... I mean, I was... I was... I was always interested in writing, even elementary school. Uh, PS7, PS8, junior high school, 294, which is, used to be called Rothschild. I went to John Dewey High School in Coney Island. And so creative writing was always one of my uh, favorite classes. And I wrote the scripts in uh, NYU. But She's Gonna Have It was 
came on the heels of, a, of a, an attempt to do a feature film that, that didn't work out, which was much more, I was not, my filmmaking capacity was not up to what the, what the script called for. And so after that, I just had to, have to try to do something and write a film with two or three people in a room, and that turned out to be, uh, she's going to have it. Okay, right down here. Is Crooklyn loosely based on your upbringing? Yes, it's semi-autobiographical about the Lee family growing up in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, uh, late, late 60s, early 70s. Very autobiographical. A little homage to Phil Jackson in that movie too, right? The Crooklyn? The Phil Jackson? I think they were watching Knicks games and making fun of Phil Jackson. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> My yes. name is uh, Ia Alatunji, and I would like to make a comment to Mr. Spike Lee. I am so grateful that you used so many of my family members in your movies, and they came home and said, if we don't wake up, please hit us, and wake us up, wake us up so we can go back to the set. And I appreciate the fact that you gave people of color a place in all of your movies. We appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, over here. Um, what advice do you have for young actors and filmmakers? How old are you? I'm 13. Are you an actor or are you a, a, a filmmaker? Actor. Why do you want to act? <laughs> huh? Why do you want to be an actor? I just, I love it, just. What do you just, love about it? The, just the creativity, the, the just, it's, it's just an indescribable feeling. All right. Can we give, a hand, give it up for my man right here? <laughs> See, what's very important, he not say because I want to be famous, I want to make a lot of money. He said because it makes him feel good, and that's very important because that's what you're going to need because most actors are out of work. <laughs> but, uh, so are you in your, a lot of your, your school plays and stuff? Absolutely. And do you have, uh, you don't have a, an agent and manager, right? You do? Oh, you're a professional actor then, huh? Cool. Well, you just got to keep it up. You know, you're, it's, it's, you're very, you're, you're, you're blessed. Because at the, the, the age of 13, you already know what you want to do with your life. And many people drift, go to their grave, never found, you know, what they're chosen to do. So keep it up. Okay, over here. Hey, Spike, just uh, want to thank you for being such an inspiration. Um, I grew up in, in uh, South America and Colombia, and for me to see movies like Crooklyn and uh, Do the Right Thing was really uh, the best insight I ever got of place like Brooklyn and it seems to me as I've been here for three months I came from Miami and I've seen how these neighborhoods are changing like Bed-Stuy and even you know Harlem um, and just want to ask you if something like do the right thing could be done again given the gentrification of many of these neighborhoods and how much New York is changing 
Well, we gave uh, an indication of the gentrification to come and, and, and do the right thing with the John Savage character who <laughs> bought that brownstone on uh, that block. But you're right. And the thing about gentrification, I always wonder where the people go, where they're going. Uh, my mother, it was my, we lived in Cobble Hill. We were the first black family moving to Cobble Hill, but she wanted to buy a brownstone. So we bought a brownstone on, in Fort Greene, and there were no white folks in Fort Greene then. And now, Sidewalk cafes, linen white tables. I mean, garbage gets picked up all the time now. <laughs> More police. And the same thing as Harlem. The same thing with, with Bedford-Stuyvesant. I always, you know, and, and if it brings the neighborhood up, I, I, that's fine. But I always want, want to know, where do the people move to that, that leave? And this really gets... This really comes down to affordable housing in New York City. If it keeps going, you have to have $10 million just to live here. The reason why Bed-Stuy and Fort Greene and Harlem became gentrified because the rents were so high everywhere else, even the Lower East Side. Nobody wanted to live in the Lower East Side. I mean, and now forget about it. So. There's something real Bloomberg's gonna have to take a hard look at having affordable housing here in New York City. Well, it's been great. I just wanna thank Spike, one of America's most prolific and versatile filmmakers. These are two great new projects, new joints. Thank so you. thanks a lot. Thank you. <laughs>